I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, and no fooling. This one has me spooked, because in this episode we're asking, who are the controllers? Welcome, 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 welcome to the beginning of Series 9. There's no overarching theme, really. It's just how I've decided to designate the 2020 batch of episodes, or a chunk of them anyway. So, also, welcome to 2020, and Happy New Year as well. Now, down to business. One of the most significant pieces of writing and research on an aspect of the UFO phenomenon I've ever read is a long essay called The Controllers, written by Martin Cannon around 1990. It began filtering out into the UFO community and then to the online UFO community at a very rapid pace. And I can't remember the first time I read it, probably 1995 or 1996, but it immediately made an impact on me. One reason is the basic thesis, but on the other hand, it's it's also the way that Martin Cannon sort of disappeared from the scene in the 90s, never really, as far as I know, resurfacing. Today, we'll be asking who are the controllers, but a just as fascinating question, almost as fascinating question we'll be asking is, who is Martin Cannon? Um, spoiler alert, we're not really going to find out. So, who is Martin Cannon and why should we listen to him? That's a good question, because Cannon, even at the height of his visibility and notoriety in the UFO and related scenes, was something of a mystery man, which of course led people to imprint him with their own image of what they thought he was. This tongue-in-cheek biography that he presented on his long-defunct website, but was saved in various places on the internet, acknowledges this, and it's a, it's a fun read, and this is a joke, okay? I'm not going to sort of let you wait till the end for the punchline. This is a joke. He is not really serious about this biography. The man known as Martin Cannon, only one of his many noms de guerre, has long been recognized as an important player on the international political and occult scene. He is a leading member of many secret societies, including the Priory of Zion, P2, the Knights of Malta, Opus Dei, the Tula Society, the Ordo Templi Orientis, whose members refer to him as the mysterious H.B., the Golden Dawn, the Jason Scholars, the CFR, the Gustav Mahler Appreciation Society, the Democratic Party, and of course, the dreaded Illuminati. Cannon was asked to join the last-named society in 1972 at the age of 14 when his precocious inquiries into the nature of anti-gravity brought him to the attention of his secret mentors, the Rothschilds. After a brief stint at CIA, he went on to assignments for other intelligence organizations such as NRO, DIA, ONI, the British SIS, the Nigerian BRO, the underutilized PP, and most recently, Mossad. Cannon's extraordinary work in the fields of post-quantum physics and espionage has prompted his secret sponsors to cover up his many crimes, which include drug smuggling, rape, and numerous murders, his most famous alleged victim being Nicole Simpson. He is a protected individual. Insult him at your peril. None of the above is true, but it seems to be what people want to believe. What we, well, I, have been able to determine is this. He grew up in a household full of rock musicians, 
At least that's what he said in a talk to a California MUFON group in 1994. In an article for The Anomalist that we'll be talking about a bit more later, Cannon discusses being trained to do art and illustration, but he had trouble finding work after college in the early 1980s. At some point, according to what he said in interviews in 1994, two books came into his life that affected him deeply. One was Communion, Whitley Strieber's classic account of his abduction or contact encounter. Uh, the other was The Control of Candy Jones by Donald Bain. Now, The Control of Candy Jones came out in 1976 on the cusp of congressional hearings on CIA mind control experimentation, and it tells the story of Candy Jones. Jones, who was born Jessica Wilcox, was a model during the 1940s and 50s, ran a modeling school in the 50s and 60s, and was a radio news presenter. In 1972, she married Long John Neville. We've mentioned Neville before on the show. He was a radio host whose overnight show, Long John's Party Line, was broadcast on New York City's powerhouse station WOR and featured all the key UFO figures of the 1950s. His 1961 book, The Way Out World, covers these madcap years very entertainingly. Okay, so without this becoming an episode about Candy Jones, she and Neville marry in 1972 and he became convinced that she was a mind-controlled courier for the CIA. This was a little ways before the revelation of the MKUltra experiments uh, that you may have heard of, but after the concept of brainwashing became popular and the publication of books like The Manchurian Candidate made that idea sort of publicly known. So Cannon becomes interested in these two strands, alien abduction and mind control, and this has to be sometime after 1987 when Strieber's book Communion first came out. He undertook a great deal of research in a very short time. At least that's my assumption given that his monograph we're discussing today first emerged in 1990 or so. So who's Martin Cannon? Um, that's the question. He's a guy who may or may not have worked in the art and illustration field. He did for a little bit. I, I do know that. But um, he examined the connection between alien abduction phenomenon and mind control. That's all I've got. He may also have grown up in a family of rock musicians. I think that might be all anyone's got, honestly. Cannon is a mysterious cat, and I think that's intentional. We'll discuss this a little bit more as we go. But somewhat refreshingly, there are no sort of, you know, mind numbingly long biographical details for us to get bogged down in. So we can move on to the essay, The Controllers, itself. Except we're not going to. And, and this is something that was inserted into the script afterwards because I first want to look at a talk Cannon gave by telephone to something called the UFO Contact Center International Group Meeting in 1988. This talk was transcribed on the internet and entitled Mind Control and Abductions. There's a link to it in the show notes. And here we get the beginnings of Cannon's theory, which was really nearly fully formed even at this date. Remember, Communion, one of the books that sent him down this trail, had just come out in 87. So Cannon had either done a remarkable amount of research in a short time, or he's not being upfront about everything, but who knows. So at the beginning of the talk, Cannon lays out his basic theory. All I can say is that I have been, for over a year now, pursuing a specific theory of UFO abductions, which has royally ticked off everybody that I've come into contact with, believer and skeptic alike. 
This is a theory that, I think, designed to make me hate it. I'm primarily interested in the government's involvement in the UFO phenomenon. Specifically, it seems to me, and I might as well lay out all my cards on the table at once, it seems to me the abduction phenomenon might just be a ploy. That the aliens are a papier-mâché mask, as I sometimes put it, for something else that's really going on. All theories of UFO abductions that I've ever come across, excepting the entirely skeptical ones put out by people like Philip Klass, they all include some aspect of the concept of mind control. Now, it seems to me that if people's minds are being controlled, and I think that this technology is in existence, then we have to ask the question, can we trust the participants' reports of what they are seeing in terms of perhaps even the UFOs they are seeing, but certainly the nature of the abduction experience itself? Do we even have to assume that the little gray aliens exist simply because people tell us that they do, even if they believe that they exist? This talk discusses much of what we will see in the controllers, but in far less technical and detailed terms. In fact, this may sound weird, but while I encourage you to read both this essay and the controllers, I think reading mind control and abductions after the controllers actually makes more sense. So, the controllers. It's usually described as a monograph. Okay, there's the footnote noise. Monograph is a tricky term. In technical terms, a monograph is usually the word used to describe an academic or scholarly text. In the real world, we call them books. Uh, Monographs are used to distinguish book-length scholarly works from edited collection of scholarly essays. So, is it... An S is the controller's an essay? Is it a monograph? I think I, a few sites refer to it as a white paper, which I think is probably the best way to think about it. That's sort of how I think about it anyway, sort of a preliminary investigation into a very specific topic. Now, if you find a random copy of the controllers out there on the internet, and there's a link to the one I, I think is the best one in the show notes just because of the formatting. Depending on formatting, if you printed it out, it's about 50 to 60 single-spaced pages. So white paper, essay, I think it's what the internet calls a long read today. Um, It's a long essay. It's not a book, but it's more than an article. So we're not going to parse the thing sentence by sentence, but I do want to highlight the opening sentence. One wag has dubbed the problem... Terra and the Pirates. Now, this sentence was kind of dated in 1990. I was around in 1990. Like, let's see, what was I? I was about 15 in 1990, and I would have needed most of this translated. A wag is a joker, according to my dictionary, and Terry and the Pirates was one of those adventure newspaper comic strips that no one reads, like Apartment 3G or Mary Worth. Terry and the Pirates ran from 1934 to 1973 and probably hadn't been relevant to anyone since 1952. Don't contact me, Terry and the Pirates fans. I do not want to engage with you on this. So this opening is an, is an odd sentence, and he goes on to make the analogy of pirates to abducting aliens, and it, it just doesn't work. And there's I, I, this, is, this is the truth. There are times when I was going to reread this, and I hit that first sentence, and I was like, nope putting it away. So anyway, Canon, it it gets better. Canon segues into an overview of the abduction phenomenon from the perspective of his research. 
Among ufologists, the term abduction has come to refer to an infinitely confounding experience or matrix of experiences shared by a dizzying number of individuals who claim that travelers from the stars have scooped them out of their beds or snatched them from their cars and subjected them to interrogations, quasi-medical examinations, and instruction periods. Usually, these sessions are said to occur with an alien spacecraft. Frequently, the stories include terrifying details reminiscent of the tortures inflicted in Germany's death camps. The abductees often, though not always, lose all memory of these events. They find themselves back in their cars or beds, unable to account for hours of missing time. Hypnosis or some other trigger can bring back these haunted hours in an explosion of recollection. And as the smoke clears, an abductee will often spot a trail of similar experiences stretching all the way back to childhood. Perhaps the oddest fact of these odd tales. Many abductees, for all their vividly recollected agonies, claim to love their alien tormentors. That's the word I've heard repeatedly. Love. Now, this is interesting to me because it might be because my initial exposure to the abduction phenomenon came a bit later than 1990, but the image of love Cannon describes here never really seemed as widely spread as he implies. But I sort of came into the abduction thing via the Krill Papers and John Lear and Bill Cooper and Bill English and then later David Jacobs stuff. So my exposure to the abduction idea was was the much darker sort of thing. So in the context of 1990, it makes a little more sense. In this opening section, he also discusses the dichotomy between believers and skeptics on the abduction issue. This is his perception of the believer and experiencer perspective on abductions. The believers. And here, we should note that believers and abductees are two groups whose memberships overlap, but are in no way congruent, accept such stories at face value. They accept, despite the seeming absurdity of these tales, the internal contradictions, the askew logic of narrative construction, the severe discontinuity of emotional response to the actions described. The believers believe, despite reports that their beloved space brothers use vile and inhuman tactics of medical examination, senseless procedures most of us, and certainly the vanguard of an advanced race, would be ashamed to inflict on an animal. The believers believe, despite the difficulty of reconciling these unsettling claims with their own deliriums of benevolent off-worlders. I have a lot of admiration for the way he constructed this section, drawing a distinction between the abductees and believers in the abduction phenomenon, with the believer contingent imposing meanings and drawing conclusions that the actual experiencers may not. The skeptical side, Cannon presents as similarly off-balance. Conversely, the skeptics dismiss these stories out of hand. They dismiss, despite the intriguing confirmatory details, the multiple witness events, the physical traces left by the euphonauts, the scars and implants left on the abductees. The skeptics scoff, though the abductees tell stories similar in detail, even certain tiny details, not known to the general public. So there's something going on, but both sides refuse to acknowledge important aspects, overlaying their perspectives on what may actually be happening. Both sides are missing an important part of the puzzle. The opening section of the controllers begins the process of decoupling the abduction phenomenon from the UFO phenomenon. Both believer and skeptic, in my opinion, miss the real story. Both make the same mistake. They connect the abduction phenomenon to the 40-year history of UFO sightings, and they apply their prejudices about the latter to the controversy about the former. 
At first, the link seems natural. Shouldn't our thoughts about UFOs color our thoughts about UFO abductions? No. They may well be separate issues, or rather, they are connected only in this. The myth of the UFO has provided an effective cover story for an entirely different sort of mystery. Remove yourself from the believer-skeptic dialectic, and you'll see the third alternative. As we examine this alternative, we will, of necessity, stray far from the saucers. We must turn our face from the paranormal and concentrate on the occult, if by occult we mean secret. I posit that the abductees have been abducted, yet they are also spewing fantasy, or more precisely, they've been given a set of lies to repeat and believe. If my hypothesis proves true, then we must accept the following. The kidnapping is real, the fear is real, the pain is real, the instruction is real, but the little gray men from Zeta Reticuli are not real. They are constructs, Halloween masks meant to disguise the real faces of the controllers. The abductors may not be visitors from beyond, rather, they may be a symptom of the carcinoma which blackens our body politic. The fault lies not in our stars, but in ourselves. So abductions may be real, in the sense that they may be real experiences, maybe even similar in detail to what abductees are reporting, but the perpetrators, Cannon argues, are far more terrestrial than anyone may expect. In closing this first section of the essay, he lays out his argument. One, although misleading and occasionally perjured testimony before Congress indicated that the CIA's brainwashing efforts met with little success, striking advances were in fact made in this field. As CIA veteran Miles Copeland once admitted to a reporter, quote, the congressional subcommittee which went to this sort of thing only got the barest glimpse, end quote. Two, clandestine research into thought manipulation has not stopped, despite CIA protestations that it no longer sponsors such studies. Victor Marchetti, 14-year veteran of the CIA and author of the renowned expose, The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence, confirmed in a 1977 interview that the mind control research continues and that CIA claims to the contrary are a cover story. Three, the Central Intelligence Agency was not the only government agency involved in this research. Indeed, many branches of our government took part in these studies, including NASA, the Atomic Energy Commission, and branches of the Defense Department. To these conclusions, I would append the following, not as firmly established historical fact, but as a working hypothesis and grounds for investigation. The UFO abduction phenomenon might be a continuation of clandestine mind control operations. Now, I'm not really sure if all of this actually qualifies as an argument. I think it works well as what we might call informed speculation. And it's important to note that he says abductions might be the responsibility of the CIA or other intelligence agencies, not that they definitely are, or that all abduction cases are attributable to the same source. The next section, entitled The Technology, discusses this history of various mind control or mind-influenced technologies, beginning with efforts in World War II by the OSS and the Navy, and continuing with the work of the CIA and its infamous MKUltra programs. There is not enough time in the world to talk about MKUltra here, but I'll say that this was an umbrella program through which the CIA carried out, both on its own and through partners in industry and higher education, investigation into the possibilities of using various mind control techniques like hypnotism, 
chemicals, and bioelectronic devices for the purposes of giving agents particular skills, forcing interrogation victims to reveal information, and similar sorts of things. So, bioelectronic devices, many of them took the form of implants. Cue ominous music. Now, if we're talking about things that we often associate with the abduction phenomenon, victims, or experiencers, implants have to be right up there. One of the key figures in the development of implants that could, when placed in the brain, control actions was Jose Delgado, who in the 1950s developed an implant he called the Stimosiever. Now, the story of the Stimosiever first got, I think, its widest public exposure in a 1967 book called Were We Controlled by Lincoln Lawrence, uh, not his real name, probably a guy named Bill Lincoln, who was a science writer for the New York Times, I think. He's sort of the leading candidate for that pseudonym that I've found. So this is a book about mind control and the possibility that mind control played a role in the Kennedy assassination. Anyway, the story of the Stimosiever is that Delgado placed one of these in the brain of a bull, entered a bull ring with him, and astonished the crowd by forcing the bull to stay in place and not gore him. The bull stayed in place. Uh, Delgado stood his ground, and the bull is, is just remaining angry, increasingly angry, and, and but unable to inflict violence upon the man controlling him. So the, the timeline on all this is very confusing, but Delgado himself wrote a book in 1969 called Physical Control of the Mind Toward a Psycho-Civilized Society, which is a terrifying title if you sort of parse that out. Now, in his research, Cannon argues that uh, Delgado's work was funded by the Office of Naval Intelligence, and research into these fields continued after the CIA said, oh, we're not doing any mind control stuff anymore. So could these implants or, or technological descendants of these implants be what some abductees are finding in their bodies and are showing up on x-rays? Cannon believes so. And based on statements from neurosurgeons that had appeared in the news in the late 1980s, the implantation of such devices could be completed in an hour or two, like, say, the time span of an abduction experience, he says. So there are other technologies involving chemicals and medications, sound waves, all kinds of stuff, uh, far too sciencey for me to talk about in any way that's convincing. Cannon also discusses alleged uses and applications of these technologies, um, the technologies, the whole array of mind control technologies. And the most chilling ones to me are when he would talk to soldiers who were conditioned to take horrific actions but had no recollection of doing so. A Navy SEAL I interviewed spoke in horrifying detail of dismemberment without emotion, of rape as routine, of killing without affect, and then forgetting that he had killed. Even years later, he could not recall the stories behind many of the wounds on his own body. He claims that whenever he would need the services of the Veterans Hospital, doctors would rehypnotize him shortly after his admission, while a physician specifically cleared for such work would examine his medical history, which was highly classified and kept under lock and key. According to the SEAL's testimony, his memory block cracked little by little as a result of events too complex to recount here. Finally, years after Vietnam, he was able to remember what he did. Amnesia was a blessing.
that amnesia was a blessing line is great. And one of the things I like best about the controllers is that it's well-written. Canon, without question, has a way with words. Now, much of the controllers, like I implied just now, is given over to lots of discussion about the nuts and bolts of mind control experimentation. In the second half, however, he moves into some discussion of the abduction phenomenon and how or why mind control techniques might have been used on victims. He cites the case of Betty and Barney Hill and observes that the technology the two see on the craft are not really as advanced as one might expect from space people. One example is the needle inserted into Betty's navel as a, quote, pregnancy test, or whatever the aliens called it. Cannon asserts that what was described was basically amniocentesis, and while her account, quote, predates the official announcement of amniocentesis, end quote, shouldn't aliens from space have more advanced methods than what humans will develop just around the corner? So why should the hills be targets of such attention? Cannon speculates that because of their work within the civil rights movement, that this might have been an attempt to infiltrate the civil rights movement. Barney Hill, a well-regarded figure with a near-genius-level IQ, was a safe bet to obtain a leadership role in any group he joined. He would have been remarkably well-positioned had any outsiders wished to use his ears to overhear prominent black organizers in confidential discussion. I don't know. Maybe? The Hills were members of the NAACP, and Barney sat on the local board that was part of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, which was a significant role, but I don't want to sound like some kind of regionalist snob or anything, but I'm not sure Portsmouth, New Hampshire was a hotbed of radical civil rights activism warranting a pretend alien abduction to infiltrate. Now, perhaps this was a test in an area where it would be far less noticed, but still, it feels a little like Cannon is reaching here. He also provides an example from abduction researcher Bud Hopkins, although Cannon says he has heard similar things from other abductees. In these cases, abductees were given a very normal pistol and told to kill someone by the aliens. Cannon suspects this is akin to the MKUltra training of mind-controlled assassins. This portion of the essay, in which Cannon discusses how various aspects of the modern abduction phenomenon, such as underground bases, are also established part of mind-control lore, is fascinating. Cannon ties in cult activity as well, particularly Guy Ballard's I Am Cult. And yes, it's on the list of episodes to do, so you can stop emailing me about it. Cannon concludes with the following. Whether or not future investigation proves UFO abductions to be a product of mind control experimentation, I feel that this paper has at least provided evidence of a serious danger facing those who hold fast to the ideals of individual freedom. We cannot long ignore this menace. A specter haunts the democratic nations. The specter of techno-fascism. All the powers of the espionage empire and the scientific establishment have entered into an unholy alliance to evoke this specter. Psychiatrist and spy, Dulles and Delgado, microwave specialist and clandestine operators. A mind is a terrible thing to waste, and a worse thing to commandeer. So it's not just about abductions. The abduction phenomenon, or whatever dark forces might be manufacturing the abduction phenomenon, is one symptom of a larger issue of a power elite controlling the masses. The controllers is well worth your time, and after the break, we'll see what happened after it came out. Next time, it's back to contactees with perhaps our second most requested experiencer, second only to Orfeo Angelucci. It's... 
Dr. Daniel Fry. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can also contact us by post at Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. The Saucer Life, as I assume you realize since you're listening to it, is available anywhere you can find podcasts. Now, let's get back to this dark, creepy world of mind control. Throughout the 1990s, canon remained part of various scenes, albeit far more in the mind control scene than the UFO scene. In fact, he began to have some strife with elements of the UFO crowd. Sometime prior to 1991, he wrote a letter to someone expressing concern about Vicki Cooper, editor of UFO Magazine, and her then-boyfriend Don Ecker. This letter was published in Bill Cooper's book, Beyond a Pale Horse. But then she changed. Whereas once we exchanged information almost daily, suddenly she grew more distant. And when we did talk, an odd anti-Soviet hysteria entered her dialogue. For example, the suggestion, employing a truly unique quasi-logic, that the key to the UFO hypothesis might have to do with the, quote, massive Soviet infiltration of the media. Apparently, the abductions are some sort of dirty red propaganda ploy. Her tone baffled me. Until I met her new boyfriend, one Don Ecker ex-Green Beret and foreign policy fascist. Cannon didn't have a lot of good things to say about Ecker in that letter, but by 1994, he and Ecker had apparently patched things up because Cannon appeared on Ecker's radio show, UFOs Tonight, I think that was the title, on April 30th, 1994. Okay, I think that's the date. I uh, I wasn't sure of the date. I got the files from links on an article at Jack Brewer's UFO Trail website, and I don't think the dates were mentioned. But one of the callers said that the next night on Dreamland, Art Bell was hosting a debate on UFOs between Stanton T. Friedman and Phil Klass. I threw that in my Google machine, and it told me that this show was or that show, rather, was on May 1st, 1994. So I'm assuming the Ecker show with Martin Cannon aired on April 30th. Anyway, the interview lays out Cannon's controller's argument and reveals that Cooper was probably faking threatening phone messages to Cannon trying to discredit Ecker. We also hear a threatening phone message that Cannon received after releasing the controllers. Now, here's the phone call with a little bit of context from the program. Well, do you have this tape? Yes, I have it right here. How about playing it? Okay, well, here is uh, the voice of Victoria Lacoste uh, relaying the threat just so that nobody thinks that I made all this up. Uh, I'm sorry, the former Victoria Lacoste. Victoria, this is Victoria Alexander, John Alexander's wife. I know this is a complex story, and I'm, I hope that the audience is able to follow all this. John Alexander is the head of non-lethal weaponry research at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and very importantly, he was a candidate for Undersecretary of Defense uh, uh, under Les Aspen, and may still wait, may well still be a candidate for that position. Uh, and I was able to uh, confirm through his former commanding officer, General Spurt Stubblebine of INSCOM, that it was in fact John Alexander who initiated this threat, which you are about to hear. And I hope you can hear it clearly. Martin, as an ex-friend, I need to warn you, John and Hal are really pissed. 
they're turning it over to Gordon to handle. Watch out. Yes, I did. Yeah, it came through loud and clear. Researchers have called up John Alexander, and he says, no, neither I nor my wife threatened Martin Cannon. You just heard evidence on oxide. Well, I, I, I recognize Victoria's voice. Now, the woman on the message was the wife of Colonel John Alexander, who specializes in non-lethal weaponry and has a history too long to relate here. But it also mentioned his commanding officer, Bert Stubblebein. Now, that name should ring a bell if you've read the book The Men Who Stare at Goats by John Ronson. If you haven't read the book The Men Who Stare at Goats by John Ronson, I I don't know if I want to be your friend, and you should go read it immediately. So Alexander specializes in non-lethal weaponry, as I said, kind of like mind control stuff. And the Hal that's mentioned is probably Hal Putoff, a former government remote viewer and co-founder with pop star Tom DeLong of the current To The Stars UFO entertainment and whatever outfit. The Gordon mentioned may be a man named Gordon Novell, and probably is. <laughs> I have not got time to explain Gordon Novell to you, but I will say that he was one of the targets of Jim Garrison's investigation into the JFK assassination, and he worked as a private investigator for John DeLorean, among others. He claimed to have worked on the reverse engineering of UFOs, all kinds of stuff. In the show notes is a link to an interview he did with the Project Camelot people that illustrates the full range of his amazing claims. Novell died in 2012. So, Ecker and Cannon discuss Novell a bit more in the episode, and there are some links to where you can find that entire episode of UFOs Tonight in the show notes as well. Cannon also wrote an interesting article for an issue of The Anomalist, a zine published by Patrick Weege, and I think it's pronounced Weege, and Dennis Stacy. In the summer 1994 issue, which I think was the first issue, Cannon penned an article called The Numbers Game in which he described his experiences with strange voices over the telephone. As he tells it, it all began when he was working a dead-end job and learned about various phone hacking tricks to get into free conversations with people around the country. At first, he wasn't sure that this whole phone-freaking lifestyle, and freaking, that's with a PH, that's phone sort of hacking back in the day when there were actual phones, he wasn't sure the lifestyle was for him. Well, I considered all this info interesting, but not compelling. One had to be a very lonely guy indeed to dial dolts in far-off locales just to hear human vocalizations, and hey, I wasn't that far gone. Oh yes, he was. Uh, eventually he realizes that he is, in fact, that lonely and gets involved with the whole phone-freaking, phone-looping technique. I had numbers for New York, Chicago, and other points east. Most of these connected me to silence. Occasionally, I got odd, repetitive electronic tones. Curious, but since I had not yet acquired a taste for Philip Glass, unsatisfactory. The Montreal lines were livelier. Here, I encountered actual people, or the closest approximations thereof Canada had to offer. Then I heard the voice. Actually, the voice was preceded by the tone. A subtle electric buzz, somewhat akin to the sound you hear when you hold a seashell to your ear. This faded away, gradually replaced by a young male voice reading numbers. 27, 28, 29, 27, 28, 29, 27, 
During the next few weeks, I heard the voice many times. After a while, it seemed to take over the entire Loop universe. Roughly every second or third call would connect me to the same tenor orator, constantly repeating a series of two-digit numbers. As I recall, the numbers never dipped below 20 or above 60. The voice did not acknowledge anything I said to it. Was it a machine? Perhaps. Every so often, the voice would interrupt its strange soliloquy and shout, Wake up out there! 36... 37, 38, 27, 28, 29. In addition to the numbers, he would occasionally hear a voice that sounded like someone speaking sped-up Spanish, and he observed that this, as well as the wake-up-out-there voice, is very much like what John Keel described in the Mothman prophecies, although in the Mothman prophecies, um, the voice said, wake up down there. So there's that little difference. But other than that, it's pretty much the same thing. But then the strangeness got stranger. One morning I was awakened by a telephone call. I blearily said, hello? And numbers man answered, wake up out there. Followed by numbers. But as you can imagine, the situation struck me as freaky. Apparently number man had my number. And then through these looped phone conversations, he became acquainted with Joanne an alluring woman with whom he talked long into many nights. But he realized something was not quite right about all of this. There was something oddly theatrical about the episode, which seemed designed to fulfill every aspect of a lonely guy's most outlandish fantasy. Joanne was too good. Was I really so charming a fellow that this pretty young thing felt compelled to meet me after I had burped out no more than a hazy half-sentence or two? One thing's for sure— she almost received a great deal of information about me. Maybe that was the point. At any rate, my experiments with loop lines ended soon thereafter. In his conclusions for this Numbers Game article, Cannon theorizes that the entire system might be part of a larger mind control experiment or operation. Is it possible that the rapid-fire Spanish actually constitutes some form of hypnotic suggestion incomprehensible to the normal listener, but subconsciously understandable by a properly trained individual. If so, we may discover here some explanation as to why number readers and similar telephonic annoyances crop up in UFO flap areas and why these calls seem to herald odd phenomena and odd behavior. The tone itself may also act as a hypnotic cue, provided the listener has been previously conditioned. By the late 1990s, Cannon became increasingly distanced from the UFO portion of the field, but remained somewhat active in mind control research, editing an online email journal called the MindNet Journal with writer Alex Constantine and also the author of the incredibly influential book Operation Mind Control, Walter Bauert. In 1997, he sent the following email message to the owner of UFOMind.com. I have disowned the theory outlined in my work, The Controllers, and have requested everyone carrying the piece on the web to remove it. That damned thing has caused nothing but trouble. So this was somewhat shocking to people who had read and admired the work in The Controllers. Why would he denounce it? It made, like, to, to me, it made so much sense. In 1998, he participated in an online text chat conference on a mind control group, and he fielded questions from the chat room, and this sort of addressed some of his concerns about what he had said in the controllers, and because I wasn't part of this group at the time, I didn't know this was a thing, but it sort of makes sense why he would distance himself and, and sort of separate himself from his ideas in the controllers. 
One of the participants asked him if he regretted his controller's hypothesis and whether he thought it contributed to people who claimed to be mind control victims increasing in number. I'm glad you asked that question right up front. Yes, I regret every day having written that piece. I'm glad that I contributed new ideas to ufology, and I am glad that some abduction researchers looked at the phenomenon in a new way. But at the same time, a lot of mentally ill people now claim to be wavies, that is, victims of mind control. I know that folks tell me I'm not responsible for how my writings are misused by those with psychological problems, but frankly, there's already too much madness in the world, and I greatly fear that I have contributed to it. Another person asked if he thought aliens could actually be a factor in the abduction phenomenon. I'm also glad you asked that one. One of the problems with presenting my thesis, or any thesis in ufology, is the all-or-nothing approach. I merely presented controllers as one theory which might explain some cases. I never asked anyone to exclude the extraterrestrial hypothesis. The only thing I have ever said was that I do not think we should accept the ETH as a given. This is what separates me from both the skeptics and the believers, for whom the ETH is either a doctrine of faith or a heresy to be attacked. It's simply a theory. It should be neither thrown out nor embraced wholeheartedly. My favorite question was, what role, if any, do you believe the internet plays in mind control? What a fascinating question. I fear that the role is, in my view, almost entirely negative. Data gets passed around via mailing lists. Of course, networking was common in the days before the net, and it worked efficiently, but it was much less rapid. Now everything zips along at lightning speed, and I fear that information is often quite unreliable. Frauds have been perpetrated in cyberspace. Worse, highly, easily influenced individuals may attach themselves to stories that they encounter on the net. They recall what they read, to put it bluntly. One good example. On a list which is sent to many mind-control victims, one person recalled being abused and hypnotized by Aleister Crowley, the infamous magician, during her childhood in the late 1950s. The moment she made this claim, others of a similar age recalled the same thing, or similar things. Of course, Crowley died in 1949. The moment that fact was brought to the attention of the list, they came up with a rationalization. Crowley had traveled through time. Seems to me if, if Crowley had mastered time travel, he would have come back with a list of winning sports scores. Instead, he died poor. So that amusing little anecdote explains one of the dangers of the net. He had some strong opinions about Usenet, a source of information we've found very amusing here on the show. Usenet is a joke. Can you elaborate, Mr. Cannon? All flames, no information. Oh, very interesting. Tell me more. It's not a forum, it's an asylum. So, why the harsh words for Usenet? Well, around this time, 97, 98, 99, Cannon was in the midst of a number of flame wars on Usenet and elsewhere. He was being accused of abusing mind control victims, of being dismissive of abductees, and of being a crook. Alex Constantine, his compatriot on the mind control journal email thing, um said the following of him in a 2000 interview, quote, Cannon is beneath contempt. I have seen him drive mind control victims to despair and one nearly to suicide. I have been cleaning up his messes for years. I've collected a fat file from his former associates and mind control victims who have made the error of trusting him. Constantine and Farrell House publisher Adam Parfrey also made it clear that Cannon had received several thousand dollars in advance for a book-length edition of the controllers, which he never delivered. By the dawn of the 21st century, 
Cannon had faded from the scene. So what are we to make of all this? My biggest takeaway is that there is absolutely a danger in publicly delving into issues that may cause your audience to suffer mental health crises or exacerbate existing issues. Another takeaway is that I'm assured fairly authoritatively from people who have tried, that I will not name, that Martin Cannon does not want to be found and questioned about this stuff. But beyond all that, what about the saucer stuff? What about his basic idea that abductions might be mind control, literally in disguise? I have to admit the idea appeals to me. Like Cannon later claimed, I don't think it explains every encounter, perhaps doesn't even explain most encounters. But I'm curious as to why he was threatened. I suspect that Alexander, Putoff, Novell, et al. were not disturbed by Cannon's basic thesis. Rather, I wonder if there was one or two specific details that Cannon should not have revealed that maybe spoke to something that was still secret. Whenever the worlds of UFOs and the worlds of military intelligence and political shenanigans overlap, it's easy to embark on a journey downward into paranoia. As I read the controllers and I read other mind control stuff, I think that this is it. This is what it is. And every time I hear a strange sound, is that the government? Is somebody listening to me? I mean, I've got a bunch of Alexa stuff, so I know everybody's listening to me. But the UFO thing just seems to be so intertwined with various disinformation campaigns and attempts to ruin people who get too close to things that they might not even know they're getting close to, that it's very troubling. And it's one of the reasons why I've, I've sort of shied away from investigating, you know, in quotes, investigating anything sort of independently or, or new, because I don't want to get involved with weirdo government types. I, I really don't. But it's very strange, and, and reading something like The Controllers makes me think that you know, this is all way creepier than Aliens. There's a lot more we can say about canon, but this isn't the mind control life. Thank goodness. Special thanks go out to a couple of my uh, friends and friends of the show for information that helped with this. Thanks to Jack Brewer for his articles on John Alexander, which included the links to the audio of Don Cannon or Martin Cannon and Don Ecker. Thanks also to Adam Gorightly for pointing me in the direction of Alex Constantine's interview where he had his complaints about Cannon. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Until next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. (laughs) 